Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Progressivism is the religion of white North American elites. It's very white. It's very suburban. Uh, it's very upper class. Um, you know, it resonates with people who generally are doing pretty well. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. My guest today is David Young, who is a pastor and author and a speaker who has just written a book about progressive Christianity. And he has a particular insight into this current movement of progressive Christianity based on his education. And we're going to get into that in just a moment. But David, I want to bring you in here and uh, welcome to the show. I'd love for you to tell us a bit first, before we get into your backstory, who you are and what you do. Thank you. So, um, well, I am, as you said, I've been a minister for um, about 40 years now, and I've worked for a church outside of Nashville and a uh, senior minister there. But uh, before that, I also taught some at the university level and um, have just been uh, really sort of paying attention to uh, how, how do we do theology? How do we live out faithful Christian lives? Uh, what do we do with the scriptures? So those things have been uh, obsessions of mine essentially my whole life. So even when I was a kid, um, I was being told, you know, you're going to be a pastor when you grow up and so forth. And it just so has always been part of my life and a, a real joyful part of my life. It's been an anchor for my life. So, awesome. Well, you got go. you got your Ph.D. from Vanderbilt Divinity School. I, is, was it Divinity School or is it? I was in the Graduate Department of Religion, which okay. it was a it's a separate school, but they share resources. And some of the courses are the same. And the faculty often overlap. OK, so, so this, Graduate this is Department a of religion. At Vanderbilt, yeah. So this is a notoriously liberal seminary. And it was then too, yeah. Yeah. And so you you kind of got your education 
from a very liberal seminary. I'd love for you to tell us about your experience there and how that you know affected your own faith, how that helped you see the seeds that are now growing out into this sort of you know uh, branch of progressive Christianity that we see today. Because ultimately, it's based on the same foundation, and that would be what you got from from Vanderbilt School. So, so tell us a little bit about that experience. So, well, I grew up in a uh, a pretty rigid evangelical church, and which, by the way, all made sense to me. I never went through a rebellious period. It it, it, it always resonated with me. And I went to a, um, a seminary and got an undergraduate degree and then a master's degree, also from conservative evangelical uh, seminaries. And then I, at that point, I wanted to teach in the university. And so I applied to different universities and I was accepted at Vanderbilt. When I went there, what I expected was to be so thoroughly challenged by liberalism is what really what we called it then, um, that I wasn't sure, I, it, it, in a sense, it was a mistake on my part to go because I wasn't even sure I would be able to hold on to my faith, which is foolish now in hindsight to think mm. that I was willing to risk that. In the first year or so there at Vanderbilt, um, it did challenge my faith. There were a lot of things that uh, I hadn't really thought through. and. Uh, challenges especially about scripture and religious authority and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But it didn't take long before I really, um, what I, I began to see the shallowness of what we call liberalism, as progressivism today, and uh, sort of the arbitrariness of it, and how at the end of the day, it looked to me that uh, most of the students there and, and even the faculty were just they really desperately wanted to follow whatever secular America was saying. Mm. They wanted to fit in so badly that they were willing to sort of rewrite things, um, usually a couple of years behind whatever secularists were saying. They were rewriting the Christian faith in order mm. to sort of keep up with secularism. And a lot of it just struck me as just a desperate need to fit in, a desperate need to be relevant, um, sort of a desperate need for a civic type religion that would make you a good American or a, a a good whatever you wanted to be. And so pretty soon I started to see through it. And actually I left Vanderbilt um, with, with a higher faith in scripture than I had when I went in. And I had a pretty high view when I went in. That's amazing. I love that story because you hear so much of the opposite. Somebody goes to a liberal seminary, they get their faith challenged, or they become more progressive in their own views. But you were able to see through what was actually going on, and it, and it gave you a stronger faith in the end, which is so cool. And you've just written a book called uh, a, the, a Grand Illusion, How Progressive Christianity Undermines Faith. And it's a great book about progressive Christianity. It's different than my book. My book is largely memoir. It's, there's a lot of story. You're going to get some information about progressive Christianity, but you sort of go through point by point, and uh, it's just such a thorough rebuttal of progressive Christianity. And just for anyone listening or watching, I want to uh, let you know I endorsed uh, David's book. It's a wonderful book. It's accessible. So he's a scholar, but it doesn't read like a dissertation. It's You can understand it. It's easily accessible. Uh, and so you, you walk through some of the tenets of this theological liberalism. And one thing that's great about your book is you go into so much history. And so you talk about this theological liberalism that arose in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It's what was informing your seminary education when you went to Vanderbilt. And it's essentially the same foundation that progressive Christianity is built upon. I, would, I might characterize progressive Christianity as having that 
foundation of theological liberalism with a bit of postmodern relativism thrown in the mix and then dropped into the evangelical church. Um, but let's talk through some of these tenets of theological liberalism because these really uh, are what informs the theology of the progressive Christian movement. So David, in theological liberalism, what's the view of Jesus' divinity as, as the deity of Jesus? What's, how's that viewed? Well, so early on, the, the founders of um, theological liberalism, who were largely white, elite, mostly New Englanders in the, uh, in the 19th century, were looking for a civic religion for the new United States of America. So they wanted a religion that everyone had access to and was not overly exclusive. In fact, they were really, in some ways, they were responding against what they considered to be the horrors of their Calvinist ancestors mm. who were who they consider to be bigoted and narrow and restrictive and have a very dark view of humanity. So they were sort of responding against that. And if you're going to build uh, a civic religion, it, it really can't be very exclusive. And so early on, one of the very first things that theological liberals did was begin to argue that Jesus is just a good person. He's a role model. You need to do that if you're a theological liberal, because if Jesus is divine, if he's who he says he is, the son of God, then he's not just one way to God, he's the only way to God. And so early on, one, again, one of the first changes that liberals made was a change towards universalism because they needed a religion mm. that wasn't exclusive. And so uh, Jesus has always been a problem. Jesus as divine, Jesus as the son of God has always been a problem for liberalism. You still see it in the writings of progressives today that they, they like to talk about Jesus as a social role model, uh, you know, a, a reformer, a, a really good, a really good person who taught us a lot of things, but they don't, they don't like the part of Jesus as divine because it's exclusive. It's an exclusive claim. And where I think we're seeing this a lot today in the progressive church is coming from Richard Rohr, who is a spiritual father to so many in the progressive camp. And I've mentioned this on the podcast before, so I won't belabor the point. But Richard Rohr sort of hints at this when he says, our tendency is always to worship the messenger. But he says, when he's talking about this Christ consciousness and this cosmic Christ, he says, Jesus is a model and exemplar. So essentially what Jesus does is what we can, we can also have this Christ consciousness and, and lay claim to this cosmic Christ that Jesus was able to do as this highly evolved person. And I don't know if Rohr outright denies the deity of Jesus, but he definitely hints at it by saying, you know, we, we always want to worship the messenger, but he's really our example. And so I think that's one of the ways we see that manifest today. Yeah. In fact, um, in one of the articles I read from him, he, he made that kind of statement, but then he quickly followed it up by saying, uh, this allows us to have interfaith dialogue. Yeah. And so that's a critical statement because that tells you what he's actually after. Mm -hmm. He he wants a an access to God that's not limited to Jesus, and you would want that again if you were um, trying to build a civic religion, a religion that sort of allowed everybody to come and and uh, was built on sentiment rather than upon the authority of Scripture or upon the foundation of Christ and the apostles. And so that's what he's really after is um, is the reduction of Jesus from the way to Jesus as just one way. He's mm. just one available way to get to God. Yes. So before we move on to some of these other tenets, you mentioned that the people that came up with this were largely white, elite, New Englanders. How does this relate with the German scholarship that was coming about that people like J. Gresham Machen were writing against uh, that, that was arising, I think, around the same time? Yeah, so... Um, 
right at the end of the 1700s and into the 1800s, again, you had the you had these New Englanders who were really, again, they were rebelling against our Calvinist heritage, pastors and poets and professors at universities, and they, they really were trying to build a civic religion. So what they needed was um, they needed to undermine the authority of the church. So bishops were no longer all that important and the authority of scripture, both of which can be very narrow and, and aren't very good foundations for a civic religion when you get down to it. By the middle of the 19th century, so 30, 40, 50 years later, German form criticism, uh, uh, source criticism, this, this ascetic criticism of scripture began to come across the pond, began to come to North, North America through uh, England, and the liberals were really happy to get it because it reinforced their low view of scripture. So now all of a sudden you had universities, certainly in the latter part of the 19th century, who are beginning to teach that the scriptures can't be trusted, uh, that they were cobbled together by, at times, uh, editors who didn't really know what they were doing. You couldn't really trust the authorship of certain books of the Bible. Um, there are all sorts of mistakes in scripture. And so liberals grabbed hold of it because it helped their narrative. Mm. And, um, the Germans were coming at it from a different standpoint. The Germans were coming at it largely from an anti-Semitic standpoint. When you get right down to it, it was a desire to undermine particularly the Hebrew scriptures, which actually goes back to Martin Luther himself. Mm. Uh, so, so their approach had to do with the discovery of the idea that there are ancient myths that need to be deconstructed and so forth. And so they had a very different interest, but, but they married really well when they came together, because in both cases, you have an undermining of Christian authority. Yeah, and, and that brings us to the next tenet, which is scripture as final authority, which, you know, historically it's been that way. That was Jesus' view, clearly. Um, so talk a little bit about that, because it seems to me like if you can get rid of the Bible, if you can move that aside, at least as your authority, then you can kind of make the rules up as you go. And that's what happens. Yeah, so uh, in spite of the fact that we have a relationship with a living Christ that even transcends the written scriptures, the point of contact for the Christian faith is the written scripture. That the, Without the written scriptures, you wouldn't know what that experience that you're having actually is. And so at the end of the day, you get a choice. You either build upon the written scriptures, which um, even Jesus, again, Jesus embraces scripture, as you just said. Jesus says these things. Jesus was the man of the Bible. If you're going to follow Jesus, you'll be a person of the Bible. Uh, or you get to invent your own religion. But you really can't do both. Mm. You can either follow what the apostles and the prophets said, those who are delegated by Jesus to convey the message of Jesus, or you can follow your own sentiment. You can follow your own uh, desires, build your own religion. But we, we don't get both. We get one or the other. Mm. Because progressivism is so desperate to fit into the secular age, it's constantly rewriting the faith in order to fit in, in order to follow the sentiments. Uh, and therefore, scripture has to be uh, treated as a metaphor or, uh, you know, a, um, a Hallmark greeting card or uh, it, it, somehow it has to be undermined. And my opinion is that once you decide to follow sentiment, it doesn't really matter what method you use to undermine scripture. Any method will do mm. once you decided to follow your own sentiment. And, and this brings us to the next tenet of theological liberalism, which is Darwin and the Bible. Talk a bit about that one. Yeah. So when Darwinianism uh, hit the English speaking world in the right in the middle of the 19th century. I mean, it just came like a meteor and suddenly everything had to be rethought. Uh, so, you know, at, at, at the very beginning of Darwin, people, they didn't really plug into what was being argued, but within about 10 or 15 years of the publication of his Origin of the Species, um, you know, all of a sudden you had to rethink, okay, what does this, what does this say about the scriptures? 
What does it say about the creation account? What does it say about humanity? So if humans really are descended from uh, other species, then obviously Genesis 1 and 2 can no longer be trusted, certainly not as historical narratives at least. And so again, those who were um, elites and progressivism has always been mostly a, a white North American elitist religion. Those who are elites desperate to fit in, again, to a secular age, begin to look for ways to rewrite scripture or to reinterpret scripture so as to um, so as to feel as though they're fitting into the science of the age, to mm. fit into the period and uh, the more sophisticated theories. So uh, Darwin really undermined a lot of the Old Testament. And uh, not only that, but he actually challenged what it means to be human. Mm. Uh, because if we're not creating an image of God, if we really are descended from um, other species, then suddenly uh, being human means something very different than if we were created uh, from God, given a, a spark of God in us uh, for the purpose of God and to be redeemed by God, very different purposes. So Darwin undermined a lot of anthropology and scripture, so to speak. And the next tenet of theological liberalism is progress and human nature. Uh, so talk a bit about, I have a feeling this sort of is the Darwin has laid the foundation for this, but, but go on and talk about progress and human nature. This is, uh, so you, you know, actually in the, in the book, uh, a whole lot of what I did, I owe to you, um, I think two or three different, there's a whole chapter in there, uh, Elisa, that's kind of from your stuff. And you, you've developed this thing that I'm about to explain, but, um, so progressivism has an overly optimistic view of humanity. And again, in part, that's a response against Calvinism, which progressives felt had an overly dark view of humanity. Mm -hmm. And so progressives essentially believe that we have the capacity to build a utopia ourselves. Progressive uh, Theological progressives will add God to it, but one suspects they don't really need God, that at the end of the day, their idea is that we can build the kingdom of God ourselves, uh, you know, through social engineering, through uh, various social theories, through what they call science, which oftentimes they don't really mean science by that, um, through uh, just the goodness of our own efforts, we'll eventually build the, the world that we were designed to live in. And the Christian faith teaches us that's not possible, that our fallenness will always betray our desires, uh, always betray our interests in a utopia. And we may build what we call a utopia, but it won't be God's utopia. Mm. And actually, human history points us out every time, every time uh, the world tries to build a utopia, it usually ends up in some sort of terrible bloodshed. Yeah, oh it's... my goodness! Uh, one thinks about North Korea mm. or the Khmer Rouge in uh, in uh, Cambodia or uh, Mao Zedong, who, who million has murdered as million as fifty million Chinese mm. people in an effort to build a utopia. Yeah, or the old Soviet Union or Venezuela today or Cuba. They're all instances of people who presume the goodness of humanity. Mm. If we try a little harder, we'll make a better world, and ended up instead proving the fallenness of humanity. This is so foundational. It's it, it's so interesting to me as we talk through these points of theological li liberalism, just how it's all the same thing. 
that we see mm -hmm. in progressive Christianity. It might just take on a slightly different, you know, face, or it might have a fresh look or new language, but it is the same exact ideas. And this one is so foundational in progressive Christianity, where they don't want to view humans as inherently sinful. Um, that's viewed as as almost even I've heard that referred to as an abusive thing to teach people. And interestingly, progressives are still railing against Calvinism. Now, neither you or I are Calvinists, um, but but it's that was one of the most striking things I noticed when I first started investigating progressive Christianity is just the disdain for, for Calvinists. And so it seems like not much has changed in that way either. Uh, but let's go on to the authority of the church. That's one of the things that you list as a tenet of theological liberalism. Uh, well, so again, if you're liberalism, that even the word liberalism, when it, when it was first began to be used, it was a it was the impulse to be liberated from the traditional authorities, and those were traditionally again the bishop, the leader of the church, uh, Christian heritage, Christian tradition, and scripture. And so liberalism started uh, not not as a movement towards something, but a movement away from something, a movement away from the the traditional authorities of Christianity. Progressivism is sort of the latest rendition of that, and it's an effort not just to move away from these traditions, but instead to move towards something, a, 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 um, a vision of utopia uh, described, which you describe well in, in your book. Um, so in order for liberalism or progressivism to work, it, it really does have to be disconnected from Christian tradition, Christian history. And uh, it's a sad thing because Christianity built the Western world. So many of the things that we value, they come to us through um, years and years and years of Christian thought and Christian service and Christian labor, uh, Christian values and principles. I mean, everything from just war theory to the hospitals, to the building of the universities, uh, public education, the ideas of public welfare, all of these things come to us filtered through a Christian worldview. Mm. And, and that's just the positive. That doesn't include the negative, the ending of abortion, the gladiatorial games, the abuse of women. So many of these things came to us. They weren't inevitable. They were not inevitable. The world could have gone a different direction. They came to us through the, the great masters of the Christian faith. And so when we disconnect ourselves from those great masters, we're, you heard an illustration not too long ago. It, it's, it's, the, it's the same thing as cutting off the roots of flowers. Uh, if you cut off the roots of flowers, they'll, they'll stay attractive for, what, another week or so? But eventually they wither and die. If we cut ourselves off from the roots, the heritage of the great Christian tradition, we may still flourish for a short period, but ultimately we wither and die. And that's true civilizationally. The whole civilization will. We're seeing it around us right now. I'm curious to know if you see, if you saw this in your education at Vanderbilt, the same thing I see today in this current iteration of progressive Christianity, and that's that they do deny essentially the roots of our faith in so many ways, but then in some kind of a clever twist, they'll appeal to some medieval mystic or maybe even an early church father who they can sort of bend to agree with something they're saying now. Did you did you find a bit of that when you were getting your education basically yeah, through the lens I, of theological liberalism? Yeah, um, yeah, Origen is their favorite. Origen, Origen. I know, I, he's, yeah, he's <laughs> like their guy. So, he was a third century um, church father. He's eventually declared a heretic by the church, uh, but he he appeared to have been a universalist. We actually don't have his original writing on the subject, um, 
but we have some copies of it. We have some some translations of it, and it appears that Arjen argued a universalist position, which is why the church uh, excommunicated him at some point. Uh, he had some other quirky views, but um, yeah. So you can find in the Christian, in the great stream of Christian tradition, you can find all sorts of nutty views out there. And uh, if I have to find a nutty view in order to defend what I want to believe, then then it's obvious I'm up to something. So we want to be careful not to appeal to um, the uh, you know the fruits and the nuts of our heritage. There really is a great stream of Christianity. Uh, it's broad. It's powerful. It's historic. It, it doesn't change. And uh, that's the stream I want to plug into. That's the heritage, yeah. uh, that's the Zion I want to be around. Yeah. All right. The next tenet of theological liberalism you talk about is public policy as the gospel. Talk about that one. Yeah, this one's tough to do. Uh, so here's the thing. If you're not careful, people will think that you're saying uh, that you're against justice and you're against um uh, mercy, you're against caring for the widow, that you're that you're a white nationalist, or they accuse you of all sorts of mm-hmm. things. At the end of the day, what we need to remember is that Jesus actually came to save us from our sin and to rule over us. He did not come to change our government or our social policy. In fact, if you look at what Jesus does, I mean, he had, he had plenty of reason to protest. He had plenty of reason to propose public policy. You know, when Jesus was uh, began his ministry, Tiberius was the emperor of Rome. Tiberius was, um, his perversions are so um, horrible, we, we wouldn't even mention them. This guy was a sick, sick, sick individual. Jesus never bothers to talk about it. He doesn't talk about slavery in Rome. He doesn't talk about these things. What Jesus realizes is that when we make disciples of people, when, when people give their lives to him, then good works will follow that. Justice will come out of that. Mercy will come out of that. But if we instead focus our efforts on social policy and social justice and so forth, what often happens is we become manic people, very angry people. Uh, and you see this in progressives. Mm-hmm. The angriest people in the, in, in the country are progressives. Yeah. Angry, bitter, manic And uh, if we start there, we, we actually don't make a lot of change. And we also miss the individual who needs a relationship with God. So we start as Jesus did. Mm. with helping people develop an, a personal relationship with God, where he's the savior and the master. And then out of that flows the good works that we want to see. Uh, and that really will make a difference. And out of that, I would say too, out of that will flow the way we vote to try to make the world better for other people. Of course, as Christians, we want to do that as well. Um, okay. The next one is, and this is one I think we're seeing so big time in our culture right now. In fact, as I'm doing uh, just a series of episodes for the new year, it seems like every episode touches on this point uh, at some it's a point because it's just something we're all facing on social media in our regular lives. Many people are facing these types of ideas in their workplaces, and that's a bend toward Marxism. So how does that relate with theological liberalism? Yeah, so um, again, uh, this is something I think that you've done a good job of talking about. Uh, th- critical theory, um, especially as it shows itself in intersectionality, critical race theory, and so forth. O- oftentimes, um, what we're seeing happen is that rather than individuals being considered either on their merits or on how they personally respond to what's good, what's bad, what's true, what's false, beautiful and ugly, and so forth, people are put into categories. And then categories are treated as one of two kinds, either oppressors mm-hmm. or oppressed 
oppressed people. And when we start to put people in those kinds of categories, uh, all sorts of things spin out of control. But one of them is we really lose sight of what Scripture offers us. So Scripture measures us by whether we follow Jesus or not. And so in Scripture, you know, the Bible says, look, there's, there's not a Jew, there's not a Greek anymore, that God brings us together, that we, we stand together. So there really are two races in the Bible. There are the race of those who are saved, and then there's mm. the race of everyone else. If we start to use other kinds of measurements, um, then we'll, we always end up not only with something that's not the gospel, but history tells you you end up with something that's really violent at the end of the day. Mm. Um, it, 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 this is not a winnable strategy for humans. Marxism has never been a winnable strategy. I mean, show us a place where Marxism is working on planet Earth. Show a place where Marxism worked in the 20th century. E even socialism, show a place where socialism worked in the 20th century or the 21st, but the 20th century, 100 million people killed mm. under Marxist regimes. Show a place where it works, it doesn't work. It's just a, it's a false way of dividing humanity. Yeah, and it's very religious in its nature. Oh, yeah. Yes, it, it's got yeah. a vengeance to it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. so um, the this Marxist ideology says that, you know, uh, certain people, people that look like me mostly, have to be destroyed, have to be toppled, because we're the world's oppressors. Uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty narrow worldview, by the way. It's, it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's really American. It's, uh, it's pretty myopic. It, so it doesn't, doesn't consider the experiences of people outside of North America very much. Mm. Doesn't think about um, the fact that people like me are actually a very small part. White males are a very small part of the world's population, and that the whole world mm. has all sorts of things going on that uh, aren't really reflected in North American, the, the little world of North America. Mm, that's interesting. So the next point you list is salvation is self-actualization. So wh what is that? Uh, what's that about? Uh, so the uh, this is sort of comes to us from uh, psychology, in some cases, pop psychology. But the highest good for more, most North Americans is what we would call um, our happiness, or uh, maybe uh, authenticity might be one of the words that we like to use. And it's the idea of discovering who I am, being what I, I think I'm supposed to be, and then having you affirm that. Mm. And this for North Americans appears to be one of our highest goods. Well, that actually runs contrary to what scripture teaches us. So the scripture and Jesus teaches us know that the, that the source of, of being really who we're supposed to be is self-denial. So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up a cross. That's how you're going to follow me. Because those two really aren't compatible with one another, uh, progressivism tends to focus on how to discover who the true you is. By the way, this gets into things like sexual ethics. Mm -hmm. And this is why um, progressives are, are sort of always following whatever the latest sexual ethic is, because progressives want to say that once you discover what you're who you are sexually, then uh, then Jesus is good with that, and the world should affirm that. And uh, certainly, people like David Young got to get out of your way so that you can be authentic and and uh, be who you really think you should be, and so forth. But again, these things are just so contrary to what Scripture teaches. The scripture actually teaches us that God understands me a lot better than I'm going to understand myself, mm. and my heart is deceived. I know that about myself, and my thoughts about who I should be are nowhere near what God's thoughts of who I should be are. And this is why I learn obedience. Um, so obedience is, it, obedience is how I become what God wants me to become. 
Well, you've sort of led us into the next point, which is the sexual revolution. What role does that play in theological liberalism? Oh, wow. Well, um, so my friend Renee Sproles, you know Renee too, by yes. the way. Um, in her book on gender, Renee says, uh, she uses this phrase, I like this phrase, she says, sex in America is both everything and nothing. Mm. It's nothing in America and that you should be able to do pretty much anything you want to do. That it, it, In America, it, it appears that there are very few um, sexual agenda rules left. It's everything in that, uh, as a as for a lot of North Americans, it's sort of a bellwether. It's a measurement of where you actually stand in life. And if you don't accept what the left is pushing on us, then um, you, you need to be marginalized. You need to be um, uh, censored. Uh, actually, Renew, I'm a board member of Renew. We're being censored now on uh, some social media. We're, it's really shocking. You may have had this happen to you. It's really shocking when you realize you actually are being censored now. Yeah. And it's because of our positions on um, sex and gender, and even maybe even harassed at the end of the day. So uh, gender and sex appear to be very big things for North Americans, certainly since the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And so in that pursuit for authenticity or um, becoming actualized as who you really want to be or who you really think you should be. Sex is a huge deal. And so progressives have to rewrite mm. what Christianity and scripture say about sexuality. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say this. Uh, it is, I think, it is, it's the real disease behind so many of the social symptoms that we see in North America. So many of the symptoms we see of decay, decline, everything from mental health to uh, incarceration rates, to uh, uh, gangs, drug use, and all this. for so many of those symptoms, the real problem has been the sexual revolution, which which has led to the collapse mm. of so many American families. Yeah, and so we can treat the symptoms, but until we treat the disease, the symptoms are going to stay with us. Mm. This next one is, I think, a really big one. This one kind of flew under the radar, I think, but as you experience personally, it's quite a big deal, and that's commandeering universities and denominations. Talk about that one. Yeah, so um, I think I use the language, it's like a long string of divorces that uh, most universities, I think about the outbreak of the Civil War, so in about 1860 or so, there were just under 100 universities in North America, in the U.S., I should say. And almost every one of them was a religious school founded by a church. And many times they would, these schools would be founded by people who had a very high view of scripture, a deep love for the church, a love for historic orthodoxy. And then the school would start to drift leftward. And so someone would go out, take a group from there and start a new school in order to be uh, orthodox again and biblical again, only to discover that school was now drifting leftward. And so like a strong, uh, long string of divorces, these schools, these universities, in fact, from Harvard to Yale to Princeton, Westminster, you just see it over and over again. And so um, those on the left, I don't, I don't want to say it, this sounds a little harsh, but they, they rarely founded a school. They just always took over a school. Uh. And so those who had a very high passion for Jesus and scripture would have to go restart another school. We see that happening in the universities. It's still going on right now. It, I mean, it's just a constant drift. And uh, it also happens in denominations. So the mainline Protestant denominations in America, the seven big ones that are often mentioned, um, all of them have tilted one to one degree or another to the left. And most of them are, uh, they're really on life support. I mean, they're just, they're headed for extinction. Mm -hmm. There's an article just came out um, 
the last month or so, uh, uh, Episcopalian bishop said, look, we, we may not make it through the pandemic. We may not make it another 20 years in North America. Mm. And the root cause is because they've abandoned, in my opinion, at least, everything that would have made it worthwhile to be a Christian. Right. And uh, so it's that commandeering of Orthodox and biblical organizations turning them leftward and then usually walking out of the Christian faith altogether. And that is so much what we see with progressive Christianity in its current form, because it's not like you're seeing a bunch of progressive Christians doing church plants where they're starting nope. a new church that's progressive. They're taking over churches Always. as they start to lean leftward and start to kind of drift into those waters. That's what happens every time. And uh, and so this is our final point here of, of theological liberalism is moving into evangelicalism. Uh, it's interesting how all of these tenets basically build on each other. And so, so essentially you have this culminating in the evangelical church. Talk a bit about that. Yeah. So this is what um, has surprised a lot of us is that in the last 20 or 30 years, how many evangelicals have begun to flirt with uh, progressivism? So, uh, you know, in the, uh, so uh, 1979, I went to seminary and when I first went, uh, you know, it was a real deep chasm between evangelicals on the one hand and liberals on the other. And you, you know who you know who was where. But over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, progressivism has become very attractive to a lot of evangelicals, especially those who are younger, but not, not just those who are younger. And I suspect there are all sorts of sociological, uh, sociological reasons behind this. But what we should realize is whenever our churches or our universities start to go progressive, almost always the clock begins to tick on how much longer they're really going to remain Christian. Mm. Uh, this is true for churches. So uh, when a church becomes progressive, almost always, there are a few exceptions. Uh, th they begin a, a long, steep decline. And when a university becomes progressive, they begin the long process of writing Christ out of their, um, their Christian faith. So, you know, a place like Harvard, uh, you know, now their logo is Veritas, but it used to be Ecclesia and Veritas. It used mm. to be church and truth. And the idea was you get one, you get the other. Uh, and now, you know, I think you could go to Harvard and never actually know that it was ever a Christian university, which it was. It was founded as a preacher training school. Mm. Um, so was Yale. So was Princeton. You name it. So many of the first universities. Vanderbilt was. Vanderbilt was founded by a Methodist minister for, for the purpose of training people in Christian education. Uh, he just happened to get some of his uh, money from Vanderbilt. And again, I think you could go today, and if there weren't a dead school sitting over there somewhere, you would have no idea it ever had Christian roots to it. In your backstory, you mentioned how when you were at Vanderbilt, so much of what you were learning in the New Testament studies and the scholarship was about two years behind secular scholarship. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd love to know how that relates to the Bible. How how would you describe the way progressives read the Bible. You you use an interesting term in your book, the hermeneutic of convenience. Of course, hermeneutic meaning how, how we interpret the text. So the hermeneutic of convenience. Talk a bit about that and how that relates with the theological liberalism you learned at Vanderbilt. So um, I, 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 I would first just say that I really had a good experience at Vanderbilt. I, I, love, I loved what I got there. It was, a, it was an awesome experience that I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I loved it. I loved the school. I, I made a lot of good friends there. I loved a lot of people there. Uh, but I did notice that uh, the view of scripture was, was pretty low. And what was sad to me was that most of those 
who were in the religious program that I was in at least, and I, I suspect this is true across the board, had started out with a high view of scripture. Most of them had. So you, you don't normally go into a biblical program uh, just because you're interested in scripture. You go into it because you because you believe in it. It has it matters to you. And then somewhere over the course of time through frustrations or uh, made painful events in your life or questions you couldn't get a good answer to, they began to lose their faith. And so what they would do is oftentimes they're, you know, you're so invested. But my PhD is seven years to get the PhD. I had to learn four foreign languages. In my case, I had to learn six foreign languages just to get the PhD. So you're, you're way invested in this. You know, it was hard on my marriage. It was hard on as part of my physical health. And if you lose faith halfway through there, you can't just walk away from it. You know, mm. you're tens of thousands of dollars into it. And so what often happens is you're going to keep the scriptures because you've invested so much in it, but now you have to have some way of talking about scripture that doesn't conflict with what you actually believe. And mm. you don't believe in scripture anymore. And so you find all kinds of hermeneutics that are developed by people who have heavily invested in a program, but they just don't believe it anymore. And so, uh, so it is a hermeneutics of convenience. It, uh, in my case, it was oftentimes hermeneutics built around particular political ideas or um, Marxist ideas, in a lot of cases, the Marxist ideas. Or sometimes it might just be, um, you know, a hermeneutic built to affirm whatever lifestyle I've chosen. Mm -hmm. And for me, at least at Vanderbilt, it was the consequence of people who had invested so much time and money in the degree. They couldn't walk away from it but they also couldn't believe it anymore. Mm. It's a really cynical thing. It was cynical. It was sad. Yeah. It was, um, it's really sad to see so many of the students that people I love, I'm not making fun of them at all. People I love who are just uh, at times really just miserable people. Just mm. really, I mean, they, they felt misery. I'm not saying I, I'm not calling them miserable. I'm saying they felt miserable. They were just not happy anymore. They'd lost who they really were. And here they are, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases invested in a program about something they don't believe in anymore. That's really sad. And you mentioned how the the politics can make its way into the hermeneutic, how they would read the Bible. And this is something I see so often in the progressive churches. They'll, they'll use the phrase, the gospel. In fact, I see progressives use that phrase all the time, the gospel, the gospel. Hardly ever is this phrase actually defined. But when you dig a little deeper, when you go into their work, what you're finding is that they're interpreting the Bible in such a way that Jesus, rather than being the sinless savior of the world, is really coming off more like a social activist. And you even have a whole chapter in your book about Jesus as social activist. I wonder if you could mm -hmm. talk about that for a minute and help, help our listeners understand where this is coming from and how that contradicts with the true Jesus of Scripture. There's an irony here, which is that oftentimes uh, evangelicals or even fundamentalists are accused of trying to uh, be theocrats. We want to, you know, we, we want to, mix our religion with politics and with the state. And, you know, since the election of yeah. President Trump, that accusation has been even more aggressively made against uh, evangelicals. But oddly, nobody is more willing to mix their faith with politics than the left. I, I mean, I've noticed the exact same thing. It's, oh it's my goodness. just You know, if you go stunning. out and look at uh, any of the mainline Protestant denominations websites, just go to their social pages. They have all sorts of policy issues that they've taken a position on. They expect their members to vote a certain way. They're very aggressive. My, my church has been very careful not to enter in any kind of um, 
partisan politics. We'll talk about certain issues. We'll talk about abortion. We'll talk about racism, things like that. But we do not get involved in party politics. But that's not the case for most left uh, left-leaning churches. They're very involved. They'll actually have politicians come in and speak. They got really strong political positions. So um, it's it's a little ironic to me to be accused of belonging to a, a movement that, that wants to dictate politics. I mostly just want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. Our church wants to be left alone from politics. Uh, so that's the first thing I would say. But the second thing I would say is once you have decided that the function of the Christian faith is to help us build a utopia here on earth, politics suddenly becomes your religion. Mm-hmm. What else do you have? Right. So, uh, you know, historic Christianity is looking for the resurrection, a new heaven and a new earth, the second coming of Jesus and all these fantastic things that he'll bring with him. So so politics for uh, historic Christianity it's really not that important at the end of the day. But if you've rejected all of that, if you believe that the end of time is just not that important, the second coming is not that important, then what else do you have with politics? So politics becomes all the rage for progressives because they they really are trying to build their heaven here on earth right now. And the power of the government is the best way for them to do that. And and where are they getting this Jesus as social activist? I mean, when I read through the Gospels, that's not the picture I get from Jesus. Of course, he had mercy for people and he was compassionate toward people, but it seemed like his compassion and mercy was always motivated um, from a sin and redemption sort of lens. Like he he was weeping over Jerusalem like like they were just lost sheep without a shepherd. And um, where where are they getting this this political activist Jesus from the gospels? Well, so First of all, you, you do have um, a social concern in the scriptures. The scripture has high social concerns. So you look at, for example, the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and you know they're concerned about the social structures of Israel, and they speak about the, uh, the, the coming reign of God. So when Jesus comes in using the phrase kingdom of God, which uh, appears uh, you know scores and scores of times in the synoptic gospels, doesn't appear much in John's gospel, by the way, then he he seems to be drawing upon some of this prophetic tradition that uh, there'll come a time where uh, you know widows won't be abandoned, where there'll be justice for the poor, where uh, there won't be oppression against people. And so it's fair to say that Jesus has these social concerns. He does. Uh, he acts in these ways. Um, I think to some extent what's happened with progressivism is they've taken the concept of the kingdom of God and they've just carried it much further They've used Marxist lenses, for example, or utopian lenses to read what the Bible actually fairly modestly refers to as the reign of God in our lives. Uh, So not the building of a new nation or the building of a Christian nation or the building of a social utopia here on earth, but simply the reign of God lived out in our lives. So actually, I do think that, um, so I want to be careful how I say this, but uh, N.T. Wright helped evangelicals recover the idea of the kingdom of God. um, it, it, going back before Wright began to write about this, it's shocking to me to realize how many of us had not even noticed the phrase kingdom of God. And Wright helped us sort of, sort of um, restore the idea of the kingdom of God. And I think a lot of progressives who love N.T. Wright, by the way, take Wright and they just carry much further than even he would go mm. to suggest that the kingdom of God is a social utopia we're going to build here on earth. And politics is just one of the most important tools we can use if we're going to do that. But it's a misreading even of N.T. Wright, Mm. certainly a misreading of Jesus. 
That's that's a great point and a great distinction you make there because Jesus certainly was concerned with people's physical needs and mm-hmm. and and things along those lines, uh, but with this eternal perspective in view, and uh, so that, that's a great distinction there too, and a, and a great distinction on right as well. Um, Okay, so I want to ask you something that I first learned from your book uh, way back when you first sent it to me, and I offered a joyful endorsement. I loved endorsing your book because I thought it was so great. And one of the things you really helped clarify for me is that we constantly hear the charge from progressive Christians that somehow what we believe is this white nationalism. Uh, I've written articles that are purely theological, just talking about the atonement, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and I've been accused of being a white nationalist. I could not figure out where that was coming from in the beginning because I've, I've typically been careful not to do political commentary and things along those lines, but then I began to realize they believe that the way that we're defining the gospel is coming from this white, elite... Uh, affluent Western type of mentality, but you turn this on its head in your book. I'd love for you to talk a bit about where that's coming from and what 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 it all what this all is in actuality. Uh, well, again, let's talk about irony for a moment. Um, progressivism is the religion of white North American elites. It is the yes. religion of white North American elites. If you took a progressive gospel into a, a working class area you could you you would have a hard time finding anyone who was even remotely interested in it and the same could be true uh can be said about most uh ethnicities in north america they just don't have much interest at all in it it it, it's very white it's very suburban uh it's very upper class um you know it resonates with people who generally are doing pretty well uh it's self-affirming so so it, it sort of fits into that that north american thing if you look at world Christianity, most of world Christianity actually has a very high view of scripture. And when scripture is played out in world Christianity, so let's talk about the global south for a moment, which is that region really south of the equator. It runs from uh, South America, especially Africa, the Middle East, the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia. When, when, when Christians in those areas open up their Bibles, they end up looking very orthodox biblically. I mean, they just follow what the scriptures say, and they turn out arguing the very same things that evangelicals argue in North America. And, and these are by the hundreds and hundreds of millions, not thousands, mm-hmm. but millions of people. None of them would ever, ever imagine becoming theologically progressive because they, they don't see it at all in the Christian faith. In fact, when they hear about it, they don't believe it. They don't really think North America's would actually believe this. So uh, our church does a lot. We, we plant a lot of churches now. We're planting a lot of churches in the global south. And w- rarely does the subject of progressive, progressivism come up. But if it ever does, they don't believe us when we tell them that people actually believe these things. How could you believe that? Just open the Bible and do what it says. And when you do, it turns out to be very orthodox, mm. um, very historic in its Christian faith. So at the end of the day, what I'm arguing is that um, it is progressivism. It's it's, it's the tiniest sliver of the Christian faith. It feels big in North America because they have control of a lot of organizations and because evangelicals are very attracted to it. Now, some evangelicals, not, maybe not even that many, but in the world scope of things, it's just a blip on the radar. It just, um, and, and feels very self-indulgent, very North American 
and very upper middle class. Yeah. Well, and that's that's my experience as well, is when I talk to people who are involved in global Christianity and missionary work all over the world, they're saying, these people would look look at you like you're crazy if you suggested some of the ideas yeah, that progressive Christians are suggesting. So David, in, in a moment here, we're going to go into our subscriber portion for Patreon supporters, uh, tier four and up. We're going to continue our discussion. Um, if, if you're listening or watching today and you want to take a look at what's available on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. There are several different tiers you can select. You can get early access to podcasts with tier two and up. You can get uh, access to bonus, exclusive bonus content, where we ask a few extra questions of our guests from tier four and up. You can take a look at the different options there and sign up if you feel led. But David, as we come back with you, uh, what would you leave our listeners with today? If they've, maybe there is somebody listening who is in a liberal seminary, they're drowning. They don't know what to do. Maybe somebody's at a church where they're sensing this progressive shift and they're drowning. They're feeling overwhelmed. What would your word of encouragement be to them today? First, a word of resolve. Let me say that when you confess, um, uh, you know, at, at that, that moment of salvation or whenever it was, uh, you confess that Jesus is the son of God. Uh, you, you were making a statement of resolve at that point. And so it's, it's the equivalent of getting married. You know, when you, when you exchange a value, you've gotten married. And now from this point forward, the question is not whether or you, you're going to follow Jesus or not. The question is, how are you going to do it? So the first thing I would just say is that when you make a statement of resolve to Jesus, he expects you to live up to it. And you may not have all the answers. We may not get all the answers. For all I know, we may never get all the answers. But a confession of who Jesus is is a statement of resolve. And you need to stand by your word. You made a word. You made a, a, a commitment to it. So I would just first say the Christian faith isn't open for negotiation. For those of us who say we follow Jesus, he says, don't put your hand on my plow and then turn back. I want you to stay with me. So um, that was something that sustained me. It, I, I use a marriage analogy again. So when Julie and I got married, um, you know, we made a vow to one another. And then there were times that if we hadn't made that vow, I'm not sure how it had been really hard for us to stay together. The vow kept us together while we figured it out. In the same way, when I make a vow to Jesus to follow him, that doesn't mean I have all the answers. You're not going to have all the answers, but it does mean that I'm fully committed to him and I'm going to trust that he'll give me whatever answers I need. And that's the Jesus I experienced. That's what he does. He does give me the answers that I need. I can remember uh, when I was doing the PhD, having all these questions about scripture and uh, about myself and about historic Christianity. And the funny thing now is I don't even remember what the questions were. Most of the questions have disappeared. He's given me such a convincing and thorough answer that I don't even remember the questions anymore. And uh, it's just become a beautiful thing for me now. I, I read scripture. If it doesn't make sense to me, my first question is, okay, what's wrong with me that I don't want to believe this text? Mm. What's wrong with me that I can't understand this text? I don't assume there's a problem with the scripture. I assume there's a problem with me. It turns out that's true. So I would just say, make the statement of resolve, stand by that statement of resolve, and then determine to walk with the Lord. Let the Lord walk you through these things. He will. He's faithful. The real thing has been here for 2,000 years when progressivism is long gone, and it will go away, just as all other movements have gone away. When it's long gone, historic, biblical Christianity is still going to be here. You're going to want to be on that team when that day gets here. 
That's a good word. I want to thank my guest today, David Young. You can get his book, A Grand Illusion, How Progressive Christianity Undermines Biblical Faith. You can get it on Amazon, wherever books are sold. And thanks so much for watching or listening. If you like what you heard today, if this content was helpful for you, please go on over to iTunes and leave a good review. Subscribe on YouTube. Hit the bell icon to always be aware of whenever we release a new video. And we'll see you next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.